This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to another episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Revolution Radio, making smarter financial decisions with your host, Rob Nelson, former Fox News host and anchor at Roundtable Media with his team of market masters, Mark Lepresti, Managing Director of Mineta Advisory Partners, co-founder of Battlefin, leading data platform, and a former institutional equities trader at Lehman Brothers. Alex Mascioli, founder of Trade the Chain, former head of institutional prime brokerage at Bquant. John Nigerian, co-founder of Market Rebellion, former co-host of Halftime Report on CNBC, and co-founder of Option Monster and Trade Monster. Daily data insights and ticker updates direct from three of the world's top TradFi legal and crypto experts on Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain every Monday and Friday on all your favorite platforms. Let's get started. Welcome, B3 Nation, to Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on X Spaces. We do this every Tuesday. I like saying X Spaces better than Twitter Spaces. If Twitter was a bird, I like the X. The X-Files, all that stuff. We do this every Tuesday, Thursday with a Sunday edition, 5.30 Eastern Time. I'm Rob Nelson from Roundtable Media, and I'm joined by Alex Massioli, Mark Lepresti, John Nigerian, uh, and always uh, Nick Mancini from Trade the Chain at the Research Desk. And B3 Nation, it is good to have you guys with us. We've got a big, fun Tuesday ahead we are going to be talking about all kinds of fun things, including, listen, we're never going to let you get away without hearing us talk about Gary Gensler and the SEC, although this time they're going after Wells Fargo on the TradFi space. Um, we're also going to talk about the Fed Reserve and Mark Lepresti's predictions, and, and are they still going to hold true? We've got some interesting stuff happening in crypto. PayPal um, actually making some moves, which is kind of exciting. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. We're gonna try to get UPS in, um, but P- PayPal's gonna have a stable coin backed by the U.S. dollar. So let's get it all kicked off. Mark Lepresti, I just want to say before we do our Verijet sponsor, we've got a really fun thing at the end of the show today. We are announcing our partnership with C Suite, um, which is uh, Bulls Bears and Blockchain, it, it, basically Revolution Media Group, which produces Bulls Bears and Blockchain, is is partnering up with uh, Jeffrey Hazlitt, who's the CEO of C Suite Network. And we're going to talk at the end about that partnership, what it means for our show, and what C-Suite's doing for uh, for other for other podcast platforms. It's going to be fun and exciting. But let's let's uh, give a shout out to Verijet, the the only the only the only solution, you know, for short haul private aviation. And we give away a free flight. So who does that? Yeah, nobody, Rob. It's just us. And I am very very excited about having our. Uh, Special feature, our guest, Jeff Hazlitt. Jeff, I see you there in the audience. Uh, friend of mine, well-known media personality, front of the camera, back of the camera, producer, host extraordinaire. You're going to interview him. I'm going to keep quiet. Uh, you're going to interview him at the bottom half of the show and talk about the incredible partnership that we have with C-Suite. But in the meantime, a shout-out to our Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Tuesday, August 8th sponsor. It is a name that's familiar to our loyal listeners. It is, of course, Verijet, the only solution for short-haul private aviation. Verijet, of course, 
flies the fleet exclusively of the incredible Cirrus SF-50 vision jet. That is that single-engine, single-pilot jet plane that has a parachute and a return-safe landing system that's powered by artificial intelligence. The safest, coolest thing in the sky. I fly the hell out of it every time I have the chance. And we are giving away to a couple of lucky listeners the opportunity to fly on a Verajet routes to be determined based on the location of the winners, but you have to go and hit that link up in the crow's nest, smash that link, and share your worst travel story, your travel nightmare, and that makes you eligible to win. The drawing is going to be coming up at the end of the summer. We're going to be announcing the end of that sweepstake, but we're going to keep running it to make our B3 listeners eligible for as long as Verajet will let us do that. So here we go, folks, another chance to win a ride absolutely free in an incredible private plane operated by Verajet. You know, and listen, everybody, you should share your stories. And by the way, you can always take that story after you share it and send it on, you know, to the CEO of whatever airline screwed you over and see if maybe you get, you know, something out of that. We'll see how that works out. It looks like John Nigerians, Dr. J might not be with us today. So um, Alex Massioli, Nick Mancini, you guys are going to step in. Otherwise, it's just going to be me and Mark the whole time. And, you know, both of us like to talk. So, so Mark, so Mark, kick it off. Um, what's our overview? Our, our Tuesday? Are we still? Are we? I know. Don't. And I know you're going to talk about Moody's. We're going to talk about Moody's downgrading banks. But are are we still in these the uh, traders the 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 stock traders almanac of a bad a bad beginning to August? You know, Rob, I'm really happy that you brought that up because um, we are we, we we have an almost perfect record of following the stock traders almanac, which has been around. For a very, very long time since before we stopped trading in fractions and things of that nature. But yeah, true to form and true to history, we are. This, of course, the 8th of August. Tomorrow's the night. That's that first nine trading days of August that count that are under the Stock Traders Almanac traditionally pretty bad, pretty grim, ending in the red today. No exception. The Dow closed down 158 spots, 64 points. Just shy of half a basis point to close at 35, 314, spot 49. The S&P dropped just shy of half a percent, spot 42 to end at 4, 4, excuse me, 4,499, spot 38. The NASDAQ, the worst of the bunch, pulled back uh, just shy of a full percent, 0.79 to be precise, to close at 13,884, spot 32 bringing losses total for August down to a whopping 3.2%. My gosh, it seems like July was just with us. That's a lot to lose so far. And of course, as you point out, that I'm not going to jump the shark, but in my humble opinion, the biggest headwind on the major indices, of course, that somewhat surprising Moody's downgrade of no less than 10 major banks here in the United States, citing their exposure to CRE, commercial real estate, of course. Uh, the banking sector in general took it on the chin. No one was spared. Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase down 2.1%, 0.6% respectively. The uh, Spider S&P Bank ETF KBE, which our listeners learned so much about during the Q1 banking crisis, dropped 1.3%. We continue, of course, through the latest batch of earnings, UPS dragging down its shipping brethren, closing almost a full percent down after reporting weaker than expected revenue for the second quarter. Forward-looking guidance fairly grim and being weighed down by that major trade dispute with the labor unions. 
Um, and look, you know, overall, Rob, the earnings season has actually gone, notwithstanding how August has been feeling, pretty better, pretty much better than expected. 89% of S&P stocks are done reporting. So we are sort of rounding, you know, third base here in this Q2 earnings season. And about four-fifths of them have met or beat Wall Street's expectations. That is, of course, according to our friends over at FactSet, data nerds like me and the people over at Battlefront. Data nerds. Data nerds are, are, are in these days. Since we don't have John, Mark, let's just, uh, maybe we won't jump into the futures as much, but let's talk macro. So, you know, um, the S&P Global is no longer handing out scores to corporate borrowers on EST, ESG sorry, criteria. I, I've never, and I think a lot of listeners didn't even know that this whole thing went on. They get, a, they, they get an ESG rating and the market pays attention, right? I mean, whether it's that's good or bad. No, they don't. The market doesn't care. The company's adjust, right? They're doing things. They're going, well, we got to have our ESG rating good. Well, so listen, you know, I, I think I think the smart money um, doesn't pay as much attention to it, perhaps, as other segments of, of the market. And because it's known, and we covered this, actually, loyal listeners will recall, a couple of months ago, I think, we covered this in, in the latest SEC inquiries into what these criteria were and how issuers can actually game the system a bit by um, having really low ESG scores for making things like tobacco products. Um, and Altria, I believe, actually having a higher ESG score by most of the major metrics than EV manufacturers and companies that are in the renewable energy space. Well, how do you do that? They do it by sort of having more diversity hires and things of that nature. And I'm not saying that's bad, but that is a little bit of gaming the system. So I, I actually uh, applaud, and this is something I very rarely do, but I applaud S&P Global uh, for uh, uh, stopping that practice. I want to just point out a couple things John did send to me um, from the beaches of Majorca. A couple things that he was That guy, by the way, just seems to be beach to beach to beach. I'm just it, saying. It actually well, is traveling well. Well, life's a, life's a beach and then you're John. Um, but he pointed out, you know, China exports plunged by 14.5% in July. That's year over year. That is a remarkable, remarkable slump in China exports. Keeping an eye on that. John was also watching Beyond Meat, B-Y-N-D. This is one that I have been a bear about for a long, long time. You don't believe me? Go Google my name, Liz Claim and Fox Business. I was telling people to sell the hell out of this thing. July of last year, down 24%. What a total crap show that is. Um, and let's see, what else did John have? I think that's it. I'm going to I'm gonna leave more time than normal for Alex and Nick. On the That's right. Update. On the crypto update. Let me just tell everybody, you're listening to Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Twitter Spaces. Please take a minute and, oh, sorry, X Spaces. I got to get it right. Now we can officially say it. And don't, you can't even download the Twitter app anymore from the, from Google Play or the App Store. So it's X now. Um, follow us at Get Rev Radio. It takes two seconds and it means a lot to us. You hit the follow button. We get the, we get your follow and please share out the space and follow everybody on it. But yeah, Alex Massioli, you want to kick us off on the? Uh, on, I'm I'm not gonna let I'm not gonna let Mark get out of the trad buy segment. So oh. he, um, <laughs> no, a lot of a lot of stuff going on, and and props to Mark for uh, carrying uh, you know John on his back here during while he's beaching it up somewhere. Um, no, I, you know uh, one thing I want to comment on is you know Mark had brought up the the KRE, uh, which is a regional banking. Um, 
uh, you know, a, a basket. It, it, it's, I was really upset when Moody's downgraded because I really had a feeling investors were watching KRE, which has a very good uh, weighted amount of those regional banks to it. And, and we're looking for a rebound in earnings from those banks that got, you know, pummeled uh, from the uh, from the what we call choke point 2.0 back in the early spring. Um, and, and myself included, I, you know, I mean, obviously looking back, I'm happy I didn't make the trade, but I had been eyeing it for, for quite some time. Um, so it's just another further blow to to the U.S. banking system. And it's, it's really sad. And, you know, we've all discussed uh, CRE and, and commercial real estate, uh, you know, for the last two years. So we'll we'll see how this plays out, but I do think it's a really bad weight on the shoulders of the U.S. economy. Um, I did want to get Mark's opinion on something. I didn't know, you know, we, we've all been talking about Coinbase, uh, ticker C-O-I-N, Coin, um, and earnings and stuff. Um, but I wanted to see if he had an opinion of any on the fact that Coinbase is now offering to buy back some of its outstanding junk bonds. Um, it has a it currently has an offer out, I, I believe, to investors till September first, and not a bad one at that. Um, but I, I, you know, reading up on a couple of uh, reports on it, I guess they're making this offer due to the rise in cryptocurrency. We are almost not quite there yet, but almost uh, to the highs of the trailing year. Um, but Mark, did you have any uh, did you have any thoughts on that? And do you think it fits into a broader strategy of uh, you know on on missing of targets at all? The only thought I have on Coinbase, Mr. Massioli, and that's an ETF, the KBE, that's an ETF, that's the word you were looking for earlier, was that I didn't have the stomach to ride that put straddle that I put on at 101 down to 86, and I sold it out at 90 and change and, and missed out on some significant profit. But, but... What's the old adage that holds even truer than the Stock Traders Almanac? Bears win, bulls win, pigs lose. I never, or try not to, complain about missing additional profits. Still a great trade. Kudos to everybody that joined us on that Coinbase short bandwagon. Stock closing 88 spot 04, up a little bit in the after 88 spot 74. And, you know, I, I don't really have an opinion. Of course, Alex, I did a, a famous lawyer move. I took your question, completely ignored it, asked a different question. Yeah. You know, it, it's like the folk. It, it, it is the lawyer move. It, it is. is the politician move. It, it is. is. But wait, before we move on, Nick can, Nick, can, Nick, Nick can come in and give us some, some Bitcoin. Is, is bit, you know, bit, Bitcoin's trying to hit 30. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But, Mark, you know, to Alex's question, are we going to see, especially with the like, you know, the potential ETFs from the Black Rocks or the Fidelities or whatever? Are we going to see more companies that will that will be publicly listed? Like Coinbase is, is a purely crypto company, but but you know, traded publicly, moving in, into the traditional market space, and thus traditional investors are going to be looking at that more. No. Um, the only thing that's going to drive additional adoption from institutions and traditional investors at this stage is regulatory clarity. And we have the absolute diametric opposite of regulatory clarity right now. And, and, you, and that you can take to the bank. Now, having said that, people will recall that listened to the show last week, either on Sunday or Tuesday, when we talked about this, 
that I, I said, if we do have that credit event, if we do have a continued maturation and evolution of what's happening in credit markets that has not stopped, by the way, the yield curve inversion continues to get worse. The 10 year continues to do what it's been doing. So things have not changed from that picture we've been painting since we've been doing this credit special. I do think that will provide, and I know Nick disagreed with me the last time we talked about this. I do think it will provide some buoyancy for for BTC. But I think my answer to your precise question has to be no. There's the lawyer, the precise question. I, I love it when Mark uses the word matcher. And, and precise. Um, and buoyancy. All right. And buoyancy. I'll get to, I'll get to, I'll kick off crypto now, Rob. I'm, I'm satiated. <laughs> All right, folks, listen, don't, uh, crypto market cap up to 1.19 trillion today. Uh, in total size up 2.45%. We had a great run the last 24 hours. We're going to talk about that. Nick's going to chime in on the granular uh, parts of those and, and what trades were good. But uh, $33.3 billion in trading volume. Uh, it's up about you know $10 billion from our last show. Bitcoin seeing a nice run over the last 24 hours from a low point of 28.8K, now up to 296 uh, K range, trying to bust through the magical optical 30K mark that I have and Nick has been talking about for months and, you know, looking to stay above that mark for some uh, productive period of time. Trading volume on Bitcoin up 22% to $16 billion on the day. Tweet volume up 10% for its average, which is good because it's been uh, on the decline over the last four weeks. Daily sentiment score and trade the chain.com dashboard is now at a nice bullish 75 out of 100, rising 28 points from neutral on our last show earlier this week. We haven't been at a 75 score in sentiment in quite some time with Bitcoin. It isn't pulled out. It hasn't pulled out of the neutral range in months. So really happy to see this. Ethereum is up as well, rising just over 2% to 1862, but experiencing a little less price momentum than Bitcoin, uh, which is uh, which has been interesting. Um, trading volume poor for the day versus average daily sentiment, still bearish neutral at 58 over 100. Uh, and just to pin out some alpha for you folks in the market, Shiba Inu, ticker SHIB, up 5.5% with tweet volume up over 100% versus average. Adara Hashgraph, HBAR being the ticker, up 10% with an 86% increase in trading volume. Um, and last one, Privacy Coin Grin up 35% today, all, follow, uh, all following the overall macro trend of the crypto markets. Um, so some happy traders out there somewhere in the world. Uh, and let Nick break it hey, down. Nick, before you break it down, uh, you know, for those who are regular listeners to B3, um, you you know, Alex talks about the magical optical mark. I feel like I'm in the Wizard of Oz, somewhere behind the curtain. Can you, in like 60 seconds, 90 seconds, explain to people why you set these benchmarks of a low and a high and whether that means you're going long or short? For those who aren't, you know, as experienced, to help them understand how they can look at that and actually go, okay, I see what he's saying now and make a decision based on that. Yeah. And Rob, before, right before I let him break in real quick on that, because it's two little thing parts there, you know, between fundamentals and the optical magic. The optical magic, when we refer to that, is mainly for retail investors who don't follow the technicals, um, which which Nick is a sorcerer of, he's a master of. So that's why I just want to say that a 30K uh, uh, magical optical is is just 
for uh, what retail investors in, and there's nothing scientific. Well, well, Alex, you forgot the part where we all, you know, sit around a crystal ball at 9:30 in the morning and then start throwing 100%. darts at the wall. So yeah, got to be transparent there. No, I'm just joking. But it's a great question, Robin, and thank you for that context, uh, Alex. But the the reason that I mentioned those in the last show, and and the, this is you know typically how you approach trading, and and we we typically trade intraday intra-week max. We're rarely holding things, especially in this environment for beyond, you know, five, seven days. So I'm approaching trades, ideally get out of it same day, maybe tomorrow at the latest or or a couple of days at max. And so if I'm intraday trading or I'm intra-week trading, those weekly highs and those weekly lows matter extremely, you know, it, 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 they, they matter greatly in the in the context of how you're approaching the next week. So when when I was saying 30K, on Sunday, and then the low of uh, of of twenty eight point five k or twenty eight point six k to be exact, um, those were last week's highs and lows. And so, what what you want to do is, you know, you, you basically the way you approach it is there's resting liquidity. So at thirty k, someone was longing and someone was shorting, right? And at that twenty eight point six k, someone was doing the same. And so there's trapped liquidity there. So eventually, market makers, you know, you, you're thinking that it's just going to go straight down. Well, if you can hold the lows. It, it makes sense that you're eventually going to return to the highs because all of that liquidity at the lows is now trapped. And then if you push it closer to the highs, all those shorts are going to squeeze. And then eventually you're going to get there on kind of that last boom. So it's kind of the market maker's onus to mess with you, but you can't be messed with if you can mark those levels out on your chart. And based on the way that price action flows, you, you, you take your trades at that level. So on Sunday, we were talking about shorting down to the 28.6 level. Now, we did not get all the way down to 28.6. I think we only got down to 28.7. So that is a sign in itself. We couldn't tap the lows. There's too much buying interest. So if you can't even get down there on that initial week, the initial drive to start, what you're going to then look for is the inverse, which is now pressing towards the highs. Now, this never works out 100%. It's trading. But this is typically how we approach things. So we knew Mondays were, were bearish. We traded bearishly. Then we knew uh, once that, you know, once we couldn't even get to the level we wanted, we closed our shorts. And then we started looking for longs into what is historically, you know, to Tuesdays have typically been quite positive. And obviously, we got this sweep of the highs. Now, since we swept the highs, now we're at that critical 30K level that Alex mentioned. And we traded above it about $200 and then immediately traded back below it. And I mentioned this last week. Whenever that typically happens, you're typically thinking a reversal in price action. It drove higher, was immediately rejected, and is unable to get back to those prices in a short amount of time. That typically implies now mean reversion back to the, the, the dead center of the channel or the mean, when, and, the, and that is exactly the, the 50% mark between your highs and your lows. So you basically just completed a massive trade there over an entire week. You shorted to the lows, you longed into the highs, then you short back into the mid-range, and boom, what do we say on Sunday? Typically mid-range, tricky area, you want to wait for a next move. So there, there, there's your entire kind of channel experience. And this is what we go over and trade the chain uh, pretty much every day. And, and I'm always kind of demonstrating these types of trading techniques. That's You know what, between Mark's yield curve inversion and what you just said, Nick, this is like a masterclass in how to be a better trader. And I just want to say on the sidebar, for the maximalists who always tell me, there is value if you are not actively trading, I believe, in just holding Bitcoin. It will always be a good investment. So despite all that, right, if you just I believe if you just hold Bitcoin and don't trade it, 
over time, buy it for your kids, it might end up paying for their college education. 100%. Most dollar, I mean, obviously, we, we can't predict exactly what is going to happen in the future, but dollar cost averages, you know, over the past several years, you know, have always ended up being profitable in the long run. So, you know, I, I obviously can't guarantee that, but typically buying a small allocation of something over a long period of time is going to treat you much better than going all in on one single day um, and, and then not paying attention to it. So I mean, that, that's how we all treat our 401ks and, and, and you know, our kind of in, our, our long term investment, right? We're, we're always buying SPY. We're always buying the Qs. We're always buying Apple or something that we like. So makes sense to do the same with Bitcoin. Awesome. By the way, a good time for the this is not investment advice remark. I was about to do it, Mark. I was about you, to You just recommended Bitcoin <laughs> yeah, hold yeah. and Bubble Brothers is was, not an investment <laughs> advice. Go ahead. No, I was about to do that. I was like, oh, I've got to now say this is not investment advice. This is what we're doing, what he's doing. You can take the information and do what you want. And Mark, as a former lawyer, you know it's important to say that because everybody out there, we are not telling you to do this. And then you do it and you're like, it didn't work out. We're saying our opinions, right? It's really bad, Rob. I used to get paid for these disclaimers. Now I say them for free. I don't know. Something it doesn't wrong. work out. I mean, hey, let's talk. <laughs> let's talk TradFi now, guys. We have we have about a little over a half hour left in the show, and I want to leave time for Jeff Hazlitt and and to talk about C Suite. So we're gonna go a little faster, but but Doctor J's not here, so Mark will, will carry it. But Nick and Alex, feel free to weigh in. But I want to start um, with with Gary Gensler in the SEC. This time going at that, it was actually their traditional purview was was TradFi companies um, basically bring in a half billion dollar fine against Wells Fargo and some other non-U.S. firms for ma failing to maintain electronic records of employee communications. And that kind of tied in with Moody's dropping a, a downgrade on the credit rating on 10 major banks due to their CRE, their commercial real estate exposure. So, Mark, before we talk about the CRE stuff, um, Let's talk about the Wells Fargo thing. You and I have talked before. It's like Wells Fargo seems always to be like doing up to no good. Like every time I say it, two weeks later, I see something else. I'm like, my God, these guys must sit and just think about like, can we get away with this? This can't all be accidental. That said, the bigger picture is what the SEC is doing. Yeah, and, and the biggest picture, of course, is what Moody's did this morning, which took a lot of people by surprise. But um you know, listen, anytime you see that red red stagecoach, if you are a retail banking customer, uh, run the opposite direction of the red stagecoach because they are just a regulatory punching bag, a regulatory pincushion. And this, in the long list of Wells Fargo's rap sheet, is probably, comparatively speaking, pretty minor, right? They failed to maintain records of their communications people that know sort of inside baseball of securities and banking regulation, any communication you have with a customer, with a counterparty, things need to be recorded. They need to be archived. Emails need to be archived. Calls need to be recorded. Um, and, and they failed to them and, and 11 other firms for quote unquote widespread and longstanding failures with respect to that record keeping. That means they had been warned before, they might have gotten previous Wells notices. They might have paid smaller fines for that record-keeping or those record-keeping infractions. But at this point, Gonzo, Gary Gensler, and the SEC had basically had enough leveling or levying, I should say more precisely, over a half a billion dollars in fines against Wells Fargo and 11 other banks. Not good news, particularly against the backdrop of, well, by the way, the other thing we didn't mention, Rob, is that it's coming time to pay the tab 
with the financial crisis or financial mini crisis we had in Q1 bailout, Wall Street firms and Wall Street banks uh, talking about this morning uh, having to pay in to replenish that emergency fund that was used to bail out or, or, or buoy some of the struggling banks that we covered so much in March and April. But then a one, two or one, two, three punch Moody's cuts the credit rating of 10 banks, 10 banks, including firms like Bank of New York, U.S. Bank Corp, State Street. These are not small, tiny regionals. These are not firms that we sort of think about as having esoteric exposure to riskier assets, having mismatched duration in their treasury portfolios, the things that sort of led to the downfall or the demise of Silicon Valley Bank and others. Not great. And by the way, they changed their outlook. So the first 10 I just mentioned, they actually dropped their ratings by one full rung, right? So you have that those different A, AAA, et cetera, credit ratings. This is a full one rung demotion. But they did not leave out firms like Capital One, Citizens, Fifth Third, Bank Corp, where they changed their outlook to credit negative. What does that mean? When you get put on credit negative watch by a firm like Moody's, you are at the head of the line to get downgraded the next time they get around to this. And listen, yes, they talked about the asset liability mismatch that, of course, that treasury duration mismatch that we've talked about so much. I will not bore our loyal B3 listeners with that class and treasury duration mismatch. Once again, those HTMs, those hold to maturity securities. <coughs> I think this was more about the CRE exposure that these banks had and or have, I should and, say. And the reality of it is we've talked about this. We've talked about it a lot as to whether or not that's the next shoe to drop in the banking sector. I think this is confirmation that it may very well be. And, and I'll say one last thing and then turn it to Nick and Alex or, or you if you want to chime in. Here's what we're watching from a uh, data perspective. We are watching the average time for renewal or cancellation of commercial leases, particularly in the office space sector. So the credit officer surveys and all of that are still sort of painting a picture. Everything's fine. We don't have this commercial real estate crisis looming on the horizon, you know, nothing to see here. But the reality of it is when we look at commercial lease duration, again, particularly in the office space sector, and we see when the majority of the next big crop of these large-scale leases are due to be renewed or not, and when those non-renewals happen, which is what my prediction is, it will trigger technical defaults, that credit event in the CRE space, we're going to see some of the things that Moody's is concerned about come to fruition in my So, Mark, opinion. before Alex and, and Nick jump in on this, so you raised two really interesting points, and I think it's worth just quickly addressing them. One is, you know, is there a potent, you know, the, they're saying nothing to see here, but I know people in commercial real estate and they say it's really in really successful firms. They're like, except for industrial, we got a problem. So the, is a, well, the first question is, is there, you're kind of hinting that there is a problem. The second question is, if that problem comes true, do we now have a banking crisis or does that happen in the banks just adjust and adapt and JP Morgan buys up a few more banks and they yeah. go on? Well, 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 so there was sort of a multi-part question. Do we have a crisis? Yes. 
the paper in, in these particular categories tends to be somewhat regionalized, right? Real estate related paper and bank loans tend to be somewhat regionalized. I think that's actually a good thing. You know, people know the asset base or the lending base or the borrower base more precisely better when it's in their backyard. So I think there's a lot of reasons why that you tend to have that regionalization. But when you've got other issues with the with the portfolio, particularly in the mismatched uh, duration as it relates to the hold to maturity credits, if we do wind up having this failure to renew on the commercial real estate portfolios, particularly in the office space sector, this is going to be another significant problem for these banks. So what I would be looking to do, and I didn't do this in anticipation of the show today, I'd be looking to do is to see and identify which of these banks have the highest concentration of loans to uh, portfolios that have the highest uh, uh, concentration or the the nearest duration of expected non-renewals of these large CRE portfolios. There's the, there's and, the insight. And, I might, and then I might short them to get like, to give you like, how do I trade it? I might, I might short them. I'd use a foot straddle. I'd limit my downside. I'd limit my upside at the same time, but I'd limit how much I can. I love that you said I might. So again, not not investment advice. Alex, um, given all that, look, I've, the reality is Moody's thinks they said we expect a mild recession in the beginning of next year. And they, you know, and they think, you know, with tightening credit conditions, the banks are going to lose money. Well, I mean, you know, listen, we're all investors are getting mixed signals. You know, JD Morgan just came out and said there's not going to be a recession. Moody's is uh, downgrading banks calling for a recession, um, you know, it, 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 which makes Mark really one of the only level ads on the street right now. So that's scary in its own right. But uh, he's, you know, he's been correct on a lot of the feelings. And, you know, one of the things going back to the banking, uh, you know, with Moody's and what they've done, um, I, I, and maybe it's time for the regulators to step in and kind of redraft a formulation of assets uh, that banks are supposed to be within a certain tolerance of, just like they do on deposits on the overnights. Um, you know, because clearly this is happening again and we're not learning from our mistakes and we run stress tests uh, on banks every single year. It's a pain in the butt and it's an arduous process. So I'd, and I'd like to almost cross-reference what stress tests look like uh, with individual banks to asset criteria and what they're holding in their portfolio, like uh, Mark said, because I don't understand why we keep running into the same questions and problems every decade or so. Um, but that being said, I mean, I, I love the fact that we ran over, uh, I don't even know if we mentioned it last week, Mark, on the whole Wells Fargo stagecoach uh, opening bank accounts again for people without their knowledge. Um, but I also found it funny that when that came out last week, they're opening banks and people were finding money deposited. Oh, they're gonna, oh, well, that, well, that's a nice speech, right? If, if you're gonna flush and you open an account in my name, or at least put exactly. some cash in there. Hey, okay, I swear to God, people were literally finding a thousand dollar deposit. I'll take it in, the, in their wealth. Well, so open the bank's account for me and put a thousand in. Okay, wait, we're gonna move on because we're, we're our time is moving fast, Mark. Um, the Fed, this is some interesting stuff here. You, you've you been very firm. You know, Fed's going to pause September uh, and cut in Q2. Um, Pat Harker, the Philly, uh, Philadelphia Fed president, basically suggests that's true. But he he also said, "Don't we're not going to do it right away. It's kind of like 
we're going to wait for a little while. What does that mean to you? Well, listen, um, I think a lot of what we heard from Pat Harker, and, and I'm so tempted every time I see his name to call him Pat Hawker, right? Because I like to expect hawkish commentary out of him. That was a very bad, as my daughter would call it, probably a dad joke, very bad dad joke. But uh, what I appreciated from Pat today was that they're expecting to do nothing in September, right? Assuming no no dark-colored waterfowls, otherwise known as black swans, that the Fed's probably going to hold. Obviously, they do nothing in August. Jackson Hole, no FOMC comments that we're expecting to come out during August. But the market uh, basically pricing in at this point an 85% probability that the Fed holds, does nothing, doesn't cut, doesn't hike at the September 19 to 20 meeting. That's the next time that the Fed meets and actually uh, releases its decision and commentary on monetary policy. But, and, and here are the two things that I took from Pat Hawker's commentary that was really relevant to me. They, the Fed is not likely to cut rates anytime soon. He literally specifically said, we will need to stay there for a while. And he does not see any circumstance for an immediate easing of the policy rate. And this is what's so important when we have this conversation, right? It's one thing for the markets and traders and, and investors to get excited about, well, the Fed's not going to hike again, or the Fed's going to pause, and the market rallies on that. Well, folks, we are still at very elevated interest rates. We are still at interest rates that make access to credit commercially unattractive, and we see it every day. I see it every day in negotiating with investors and deals that I'm involved in or principal or I'm on the buy side of where the rates that are associated with commercial paper go higher and higher and higher. And if we see rates stay at these levels, as I've said many times, I expect them to do through at least the end of the first, if not now into the second quarter, we could see continued headwinds for credit markets and access to credit, both for the consumer and for corporate borrowers, none of which is a good thing for the economy. So Good news, bad news from Pat Harker's comments today. The Fed's done, but the Fed's done hiking soon, but the Fed's not going to start cutting as soon as we would like. That's the punchline. You're listening to Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on X Spaces. Follow us at Get Rev Radio. Follow all of our hosts. We do this every Tuesday and Thursday with a Sunday edition at 5.30 Eastern Time. Mark, two minutes on this because then I want to get to crypto, and then we've got uh, I'm going to talk about what we're doing with C-Suite, and we've got the CEO, Jeff Harker, on with us. But UPS, number's not what, what you would want. Um, but there's two possibilities here. One, it's about UPS. The other, it's about your thing. People can't keep spending forever. Or perhaps they're not going to spend on things you ship as much as your Summer of George thing they're going to spend on experiences. What's your take in, in two minutes? Yeah, no, listen, Rob, that, that's a great question. And look, you know, we, like a lot of other investors, we look at UPS, we look at FedEx, we look at demand and shipping and logistics as bellwethers of where we think the economy and consumer demand is going and where we see expectations fall off and commentary from the CEOs of those companies that are such relevant parts of the supply chain here in this country and globally giving a negative or very conservative, I think in this case, almost explicitly negative forward-looking guidance, you have to ask, okay, does that tell us that the folks that are actually moving the packages around are seeing less of those packages moving around? 
and expect to see even fewer of those packages moving around in the upcoming quarter or quarters. I want to say on this one, while I am very conservative, while I do think that we have reached that point where that consumer discretionary demand destruction is actually taking roost, we talked about it a lot on Sunday's show. I won't repeat it here. But I think a lot of what we saw with UPS's numbers, you need to take with a little bit of a grain of salt. Why is that? UPS has been locked in a very contentious labor contract negotiation with none other than the Teamsters, the famously led once back in the day by Jimmy Hoffa. Um, this is a very strong labor union, 340,000 members working at UPS that have been sort of taking the company to task on things like uh, pay, sick leave, things of that nature. And a lot of customers of UPS watching these contentious negotiations with the Teamsters saying, you know what, I'm not going to wait to see how this movie ends. I'm going to move my business to FedEx or one of the others. That is what really took a swipe out of UPS's Q2 revenue. Now, the question is, or the big question is, can UPS bring that business back? My humble opinion, probably not. Half of it, I think, is gone for good. So I would be looking at seeing from a trading perspective, is this something that's going to be a benefit for FedEx and others that are in that business as competitive players? So we're looking at maybe how to put that trade on going into Q2. Three, All right. Thanks for that explanation. All right. Let's talk crypto. Um, Mark, uh, sorry, Alex and Nick, I find this really interesting. PayPal is launching a stable coin, PayPal USD. It's its its, its own stable coin. It's going to be backed by U.S. dollar deposits. So you can buy, you know, a dollar for a dollar. It's built on Ethereum. You know, what's the big picture of this? And then more importantly, what does it mean? Because I think it's significant given that you, you know, what, what you can do on PayPal now that they're they're moving that in with a stable coin, but help people understand what that means and why it's significant. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Nick and I can cover this quick. I'm just going to open this up with a few notes before he goes into a, a short rant on why we, we probably don't believe this is uh, useful in, in our days. So listen, hey, I just came back from a very annual intimate gathering of uh, ambassadors and some of the wealthiest uh, OG investors and founders and builders in crypto uh, down the Caribbean. And when what I can tell you is that not one person thinks this is plausible to anything in crypto. You, and people are excited for the adoption, but not through the, this type of means. And don't forget, the government has already, um, you know, over the course of the last year, Talking about PayPal surveillance, uh, you know, any movements of money above six hundred dollars, they're going to keep an eye out on. Um, PayPal is very well watched, but this dollar, I don't, this digital dollar, I don't think is going to make any sort of difference uh, when it comes to the crypto world. Um, it's a great headline uh, if, if you think about it. PayPal already moves money digitally, quote unquote. Uh, so I don't understand the relevance of this, except for maybe per terms of settling uh, in real time. Um, and also it, it's being uh, it's being issued by Paxos, which I actually like Paxos. They're a trust company based out of New York, uh, very well regulated, have, you know, doing everything right when it comes, uh, you know, to the regulation guidelines. But they were just ordered uh, by regulators to stop issuing BUSD, which is Binance's stable coin. So, 
you know, going back to Mark's, you know, comments on back and forth and non-clarity when people are saying there might be clarity, this is just one of those gray areas behind the scene from a regulatory standpoint. But as far as the product is concerned, I, I, I don't see how anybody has any use. For it. Hey, Nick, Nick, um, just so to follow up on what Alex said so everybody knows. The the reality is on PayPal you can you can buy crypto on the app right now. You can buy Bitcoin, you can buy Ethereum, I think you can buy other things, you can buy Litecoin, right? I don't know. You can buy a number of things on it, right? So so to, to, is there a benefit other than the regulatory thing that Alex is talking about? I mean the the I mean from the inside why they want it. Is there a benefit in terms of adoption that by doing that it makes it makes it easier, makes more people get on or not at all? I mean, it is one of those things where I would say more people probably have the PayPal app on their phone rather than Coinbase. So, I mean, if they really wanted to, to whip it up and buy a stable or buy Bitcoin, then they would. But, you know, people aren't doing that really en masse and they're still using Coinbase for exactly those things. So there is a there is a business ad there and a, and a growth uh, possibility. But, but I think that the real thing boils down to the numbers and cents, Rob. And if you look at PayPal stock, I've got 70 nine percent down uh from all-time highs to, to where it is currently and tether which is the the largest uh stable coin is pulling in 750 million dollars a quarter um you know so so to multiply that by by four and that's you know their their yearly revenue and i'm sure paypal is extremely thirsty for a source of revenue like that so i think it's less the fact of hey Let's add a, you know, let's create a benefit for our customers who can already uh, transact in, in U.S. dollars and send them to each other and spend on things, which is, you know, the whole point of kind of having a stable coin. And I think it's more so let's take some market share from Circle. Let's take some market share from Tether. Let's get in on that $750 million quarterly check that they're getting uh, and let's turn this stock price around. So I think it's more so that than the, the adoption side. Who has, is Tether the biggest stable coin? Yes, sir. Tether it is by dominance, but I don't think PayPal is going to. I don't think that their stablecoin is going to uh, gain any sort of traction from a dominance standpoint. I, I have a hard time believing, especially how monitored and the uh, the guardrails they put into it, where um, it's very easily frozen, it's very easily deleted, and you can only uh, originate um, and delete it from PayPal. I, it, it, it's it's like uh, it's like the Tonka trucks when you're looking for a man's car, and that I agree with as well. I think it's a poorly, uh, I think it's a poor attempt at at what I described. Hey, Alex, is you know again without disclosing names of people that were at your secret beach location, um, but we know you know among them were people who helped start Tether. I mean, our stable coins, our stable coins get, get becoming more have more utility, or are they potentially a, a vehicle that you know? you know, could help lead toward the, you know, uh, yeah, central bank currency. You know what I'm saying? Like, is there more use or less use right now in value? Well, it's, it, 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 it's both. One, it, it's there's a great use for it. You know, for instance, our trading desk uh, always moves to cash, quote unquote, which is stable coins um, when taking risk off uh, in our positions. Um, and then uh, there's the CBDC, which is going to, which is all going to be the digital dollar when that comes. And that's a uh, when it comes, not an if it comes. Um, but it, the stable coin also has a very uh, big purpose in payment systems, right? So at some point in the world, you know, my dream is to be able to pay my cell phone bill uh, in crypto. And that is going to be done via a stable coin. So I think stable coins are a very big foundation 
to a lot of activities. And and hey, Rob, I, there's one final point that I want to make here that we didn't really touch on, but it takes 30 seconds. I just wanted to add, you know, as we wrap up the crypto segment, um, you know, we've talked about low volume, low volatility, a couple, couple of data points for the week. We're up 20% on Bitcoin volume compared to 30-day average. We had 13% open interest increase on Bitcoin today. That is $400 million. And obviously, we had the spike up to 30K and then back under. So if anybody's questioning, is, is this a good time to trade? Is this a good time to, to test my skills out or try and make some money on intraday? I think, you know, you, you've got it, you know, this week. How long it lasts? No clue. But uh, we've got some volatility here, at least temporarily. I love that. We love volatility. All right, let's um let's shift gears. Yeah, we got a few minutes left here. Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Twitter Spaces Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday edition at five thirty Eastern Time at Get Rev Radio. Follow at Get Rev Radio. Tweet out the space. Follow our speakers. But at Get Rev Radio, um, Revolution Radio, it's its real name, is the producer of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain. And we've got Jeffrey Hazlitt on. Jeffrey, thanks for joining. Thanks for listening to the show. Jeff, you um you are the the primetime host of C Suite, um and you're you know you you do an executive perspectives live on C Suite TV. You've got um the All Business with Jeffrey Hazlitt podcast on C Suite Radio. You were a big you were the CMO I believe at Eastman Kodak Global Business Celebrity. An interesting thing right there. You speak, you talk. I've met you. You have a whole vision about how you can both help C Suite executives and how you can kind of empower podcasting. So. Before we talk about what you're doing with us, let's talk about C-Suite. Well, hey, thanks so much. You know, we're a group of about 350,000 opt-in executives. Uh, we've got 350. Uh, nobody brought him up. He's only a listener. Nope, I'm hearing him. Mike's on. We're hearing you. Yep, I can. We hear you, Okay, Jeff. good. Go ahead, All right. Jeffrey. Cool. Well, well, sorry about Alex. Well, Alex will catch us. He's on the beach, so what the heck. So, uh, yeah, we had 350,000 opt-in executives. Uh about 50 million downloads on on podcast. We're on television, 70 some shows on TV. You know, hundreds of, of coaches, trainers, speakers, authors. Uh, you know, 10,000 members. And of course, we're looking for great content, and we're glad to be here with you guys today on Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain. So, Jeffrey, um, te- so what's the vision you have behind? I mean, there's so many. Look, we're going to talk at the end of this interview about podcasting in that space. But what's the kind of core idea? Because you come out of this space and you worked with celebrities and, you know, you got out of market. We're in a new era. What's the core vision of what C-Suite you want it to do? There's like sort of a freebie for you to just kind of promote C-Suite here. But I think it's relevant because you're doing some really interesting stuff. Yeah, it's really about trusted uh, communities and trusted executives. You know, when I was a chief marketing officer of a Fortune 100 company, I knew that I could get advice from other, you know, billion dollar companies. I would call up the C-level executives of those companies and say, hey, I need to get out of this or I need to do this. What are you doing here? And that was really the precursor for us creating this C-suite network, a place where you could come and talk. And just like the show, you want trusted information. You want to be able to trust the people that you get to know. And that's why so many people are joining Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain and all that you're doing and the you know, 100,000 listeners, hundreds of thousands of listeners and uh, views that you're getting every single day. It's just amazing. And so that's what it's all about. You know, people trust people that they like and know. And that's what the C-Suite Network is, a place to be able to come and get greater reach, discovery, conversion, a place where you get some education, some motivation, some inspiration, hey, and a chance at monetization. But you got to show up. You got to get in. So let's talk. That's what. So about. let's talk about what you're going to do for Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain. Get Rev Radio. 
we we got a press release that just came out. You know, you're gonna you're gonna help us build distribution, drive engagement. Tell tell everybody a little about how you how you do that with us. Why it's gonna matter to us? Because yeah. it matter to them too. Well, people want to be part of a network. You can have your own podcast or your own TV show and do it, you know, on on YouTube alone or somewhere, and you're in podcast purgatory. Or you can be part of a bigger network where, again, you're sharing in this trusted network. Because if you listen to one podcast, you listen to five, and you listen to eight different episodes. So it's about, again, discovery and reach and conversion. So that's what we're going to be able to do. So we're pleased to partner with Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain team to enhance the distribution, to drive engagement, you know, with a great audience that you already have, but add to that. And and we're hosting Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on C-Suite Radio now, which allows us to distribute and promote this great content to a broad audience. You know, we take the live Twitter spaces stream and convert it into a podcast format so the community here can listen later at their leisure, you know, share it with friends. They, you know, if they can't make the live stream, because not everybody can, because, you know, you're on the train or whatever might happen they can catch it the next day on C-Suite Radio. And that's what we're doing. So again, what we're doing is taking great content and going out to where people want to listen, people want to watch, okay? And we're there all the time. And that's what's great. You guys have been unbelievable. It's taken me a long time to get you guys on, you know, which I'm real happy about because I first started talking, you know, a few years ago, hey, let's go do this. And, you know, then this thing called COVID popped up. And now, of course, you know, when podcasts first got started, it was some guy sitting in a basement. Well, now it's John sitting on a beach. Yeah. And, and Jeffrey, you know, when I first met you, we talked a little about this. The podcasting space, as you just pointed out, it's a baby space, but it's going through rapid transformation. And one of the challenges every podcaster faces is you may be, let's pretend your content sucks. I mean, everybody's got a podcast. Okay. That may be harder for you. You've got to have good content, but there's a lot of people. I call them micro. I call them micro influencers, micro shows, micro networks, where you've got a reach. And, and look, you can go on Instagram, wear a bikini and get a million followers. No offense. Everybody can love looking at those pics. But, you know, those followers are just looking at a picture. You may have 20, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 followers who are actually really dedicated to you. They will. Your engagement is high. Your content is good. Your guests like, you know, come on, they're big names. And yet you can't typically monetize very easily on the biggest platform because they just care about do you have 60,000, 70,000, a million downloads? Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, uh, Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, we took his podcast, added it to our network. He said we made him more money in eight months than he made in eight years in other media. And so this is about it. This is the wild, wild west. And if you look at podcasting right now and you compare it to a human life, we're still a young teenager. There's a lot more to go. And today, as you well know, with the community that Revolution Media Group's done with Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain, you know that you, you want to drive great community. Com content drives community, and then that drives commerce. And you're able to get on a show like this, and you're able to listen and, and take, take the advice. Look, you, you, you guys talked about some cutting-edge stuff, the stuff about Moody's today, what the impact of that, Wells Fargo, the other banks, uh, you know, and I didn't know it even reached as far as the other banks. And so that was something new for me. This is what's great. And then I can act on that. So we're going to give Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain a great opportunity to monetize their content because we're going to be driving a lot of, 
you know, ads and a lot of sponsorships and a lot of other things, which because we're a network, we're, we're the world's largest business podcast network, world's largest business television network that's out there that's streaming and it's digital. And we're also doing some broadcasting. Jeffrey, let me ask you one last thing on this. And yes, appreciate the shout outs to what we're doing. Yes, we're getting good traction and we get great people on. But the truth is, you're right. Everybody wants to monetize, right? And so for our listeners out there who might be looking at what can they do, help me them. I, well, I, you and I have talked about it a little. Understand why, you know, like it's it's so hard to break through that space no matter what. You, you can bring yeah. great guests on. They can have huge followings. They can even share it out. You get a few more numbers. You're still not at, you know, it's very hard to become a Joe Rogan. My argument would be you don't have to be a Joe Rogan to be successful at monetizing, right? So talk to that because people out there might be like, well, I think I could do this. Are they they crazy? Should they just- Well, you can. You can. No, heck no. You want to be able to do it. You have to become a media company today. You have to drive content, drive that community, then get the commerce. That's it. And it's not anymore about eyeballs and ears. You guys get eyeballs and ears because you really got great content. You hit it right. You're hitting it out of the ballpark, all that. But let's just imagine you're a dry cleaner in St. Louis. You got to be, you know, you can't rely on Google anymore. You can't rely on, on ads in the yellow pages, for God's sakes, or whatever it might be that you're trying to drive people in the newspaper, you've got to become the doctor of spots. You've got to become the expert to say, hey, come listen to me. This is what I do. I'll tell you all this great stuff. And if I can help you clean your clothes, I can clean your clothes if you want to do that. Or become the leader in your category. And again, you don't need lots of numbers behind that. You just need the right 20 people that want to buy from you in a year or 30 people or 40 people if you're a consultant, a trainer, a coach, or some B2B provider, for instance, on our network, because we're primarily serving B2B. You know, we're primarily serving business. But on others, you can go and do that as well. On the consumer side, you just got to you gotta just do a good job delivering great content. And if you do that, the numbers will come to you. It's not about fame. It's about fortune. If you build it, they will come. I love it. Jeffrey has it really great stuff. And everybody out there, yeah, because I'm thinking of the person out there who has a small business going well and and the point is, yes, we are in the future of the micro economy. What you're doing, you know, with C-Suite Network is helping make that happen. We love that you're partnering with us at at, uh, at Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain and Get Rev Radio. And we posted in the Crow's Nest, nest our, uh, our press release. And uh, check C-Suite Network out. Jeffrey, thanks for, thanks for working with us. Thanks for coming on the show and taking some time. Uh, we're going to wrap it up here. B3 Nation, thank you guys for listening. It's Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Twitter Spaces. Oh, Mark Presti put his hand up. All right, Mark, you're going to get the last word. Oh, I guess. Go for it. No, I just wanted to say a huge thanks to, to my friend Jeffrey Hazlitt. And, and you know, um, Jeff can also be seen if you're if you're sitting, I believe it's on United, but if you're sitting and, and watching the, the business channel on the in-flight programming when you're on an airplane, it's Jess, and we're looking and also excited about the possibility. There you go. Yeah. There you go. In, inter, interviewing entrepreneurs and business leaders, we're hoping to expand our partnership there as well. The C-Suite Network, the tentacles are many, and their reach is broad. Jeffrey, we're very excited about this partnership. Thank you for joining us on the and show. And, Mark, I love that, what you're talking about, interviewing entrepreneurs and all that. I fly American a lot, so I don't know if I can see you up there, Jeff. But I love that idea. We are building a micro network. B3 Nation, you are part of it. You can be building your own stuff. By the way, you might be building it with us. want to thank you all for listening. Mark, Alex, Nick, appreciate you guys. Jeff Hazlitt, thank you so much, Jeff, for being part of this with us. 
Um, we'll be back on Thursday, guys. Everybody have a good day and a half. And remember, not investment advice, just insights. Take care, everybody. Thanks for joining Rob Nelson, Alex Massioli, Mark Lapresti, and John Nigerian with another great episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain twice a week on Revolution Radio. Whether you're new to the world of Web3 finance or an experienced investor, we've got you covered. Follow us on Twitter at GetRevRadio and visit our website at revolutionradio.io, helping you make smarter financial decisions. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>